Well, this is Haggai and Malachi. And uh, we'll go through this some, something of a verse-by-verse fashion. But uh, you know, I was telling uh, Pastor Ken that we could have subtitled this uh, Understanding the Marriage Covenant, Divorce, and Remarriage. Because in Malachi 2, we, we will go through that. So I will cover what is the marriage covenant, uh, what are grounds for divorce, and uh, then what about remarriage. So it should be intriguing, but I think for the bigsists like myself, we're probably moving past that age where those things usually don't happen. Yeah, well, hey, I've known some people in their 50s who've gotten divorces. I mean, I've known them in their 60s. So, but I think generally as a rule of thumb, it gets quite a bit less. You know, I figure I need somebody to take care of me when I get old, and she may be thinking the same thing. <laughs> well, anyway, but we will normally begin class with prayer, and then we'll just jump into our notes. And as I'm looking at that clock, I think it's wrong. I've looked up there about three times, and Yeah, it's running. Yeah, I just had cataract surgery, and I'm thinking, is there something wrong here? (laughs) Okay, well, let's pause. Yeah, if you all need notes, just go get them. That's right, that's right, this Sunday. It'll be corrected. So I won't be doing the double take next week and uh, Lord willing my wife's sick and since she doesn't work anymore she'll be here taking tabs on what I say about her that's why I tell her you ought to always be there but I never say anything bad about my wife it could come back to haunt you so I may say something bad about myself but not my wife so that's the rule of thumb I tell our seminary students Skip the jokes about your spouses. It just does not go down round. Well, because I did it when I was younger, and it just does not go down well. (laughs) Anyway, well, let's pause for prayer, and then we'll jump into our notes. Dear God, as we look at your word, and we look at Haggai and Malachi, I do pray that you'll give us insight into what's being said. May we be able to see how this is applicable to our lives. And may this shape our overall biblical theology and help us to see the practical truths that inform us about God, man, and our relationship with God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now I understand we will go till uh, 7 or 8.15. 8.15. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, well, Ken, if I go past... Just stand up and walk out. out. You could come up and grab me for all I care. (laughs) Okay, well, you have a notebook. It's about 53 pages. And so what that means, we'll we'll cover, you know, about six to eight pages per night. So an hour is a lot lot of time to cover material. 
I think it ends up being only seven. Seven. Yeah, because of the vacations. Okay, well, let's uh, look at page one. I have a selected bibliography. All the commentaries there are are usable for for the layperson. Now, there's going to be Hebrew and stuff thrown in. But generally, I think you can get the drift of thought. The best one, I think, for Haggai, Malachi, for uh, people who have not been to seminary, is the one by Herbert Wolf, Haggai, Malachi. It's not very long. It's user-friendly and that it's readable and all that stuff. So I think for our purposes, that's probably the best one if you're going to look for one to buy. You know, just buy it and if you buy enough, you can get it on Amazon. What do you, it was $35 order. You know, go with your friends and get it or whatever, but you, you can get it for a good price there. Uh, so let's look at the title then. The title, now the MT stands for the Masoretic Text. The MT, the Masoretic Text. Well, it's been a long time since I've used chalk. And it's really, they call it text, but it really means text because it's a family of manuscripts. Then the next one is the LXX. That stands for the Septuagint. This is a Greek translation. And this is Hebrew. And then we have the V. And that stands for the Latin Vulgate. Uh, these are primary sources that were used in the patristic era. And, uh, so there's a lot of antiquity on it. Now my specialty is supposed to be Hebrew. So I, I can work with Greek. In fact, you know, I do use the Septuagint. But it's, it's tougher for me. When I'm in doubt, I just ask uh, Dr. Combs to help me. So... Anyway, but here, my notes are ultimately derived from the Hebrew text. Then let's look at the authorship and date. I want you to notice something about Haggai's name. Look at the first paragraph, the last line. His name means festival gathering. Now, don't take that to mean he was a party animal. The, Jews, the Jewish people did have their feast days. And so apparently, in fact, they'd have to travel for some of them down to Jerusalem. And so they'd come quite a distance. And, you know, for uh, to feast the tabernacles, they're going to be there for seven days. And so it's probably people who are thinking of that type of religious festival when they name their child. Uh, 
Also, if you notice the second paragraph, Haggai delivered his messages, what we'll look at here in this class. It covered a span of 15 weeks during the second year of the reign of Darius I. Now, that's 521 to 586 B.C. Now, here in Haggai, we've got four specific dates. In fact, I'm sorry, it's really three because two messages are delivered on the same day. So, this would correspond roughly to December 18th, 520 B.C. I don't know that their Decembers are quite as memorable as our December this year because that was the beginning of the snow disaster we've had. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, that puts it in perspective. That means it's about 520 years before Christ. I guess that's the bottom line. It's 520 years before Christ. Now notice on page two, we have the structure of the book. Uh, I lay that out just to give you a broad view, but we'll be going through all this stuff, so don't worry about that. Uh, Look at the paragraph under that. As you see, there's four messages. When these messages are considered as a whole, a parallel arrangement should be noted. Messages one and three, notice I have right below this message one and three, they focus on agricultural failure. The first message explains that this is a result of Israel's disobedience to God, and the third sets forth that Israel's work on the temple had reversed the results of the drought. In message two and four, God was going to shake the heavens and the earth. Well, that's mentioned in both message two and message four. So that's why they line up in something of a parallel fashion. So, then I have the destination for each. We'll look at that as we go through that. Let's look at the occasion and purpose. By the way, if you have a question, just say something. And I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or anything like that. Just speak out. and If I'm able, I'll answer the question. I'm not always able. With the occasion, because of their problems with the Samaritans resulting in Cyrus's command for Israel to stop building the temple, the Jews had left the temple lie dormant for approximately 16 years. Could you imagine laying the foundation for your house and some legal things trip you up? So you just let it lie there for 16 years? Well, there's a fat chance that would happen for me. I would be fighting that as quick as I could because it's my house. But for Israel, they should have viewed the temple that way. But they were more concerned about their houses and not God's house. And that's why they have the agricultural failure because they violated the covenant. So here, uh, that just 
is very odd. I mean, it, it really shows just disobedience. Notice the purpose for the book. Haggai wrote to encourage Israel by giving a prophetic message about the Lord's future program for overthrowing for the overthrowing of the nations and the glory of Israel with a special emphasis on the temple and the honor of the Davidic dynasty. So, first of all, it's to encourage that, but then also notice to forsake their indifference to the God of the covenant and to obey the Lord that primarily included their rebuilding the temple. Notice there's two items that highlight this purpose. First of all, rebuilding the temple. In the simplest of terms, Haggai's message was to rebuild the temple. To support this, he indicated to Israel that their recent crop failures was due to their neglect of rebuilding the temple. So that's a primary thing here. But also there's something else here. Correcting Judah's spiritual priorities by obeying God. By the way, that has practical application for us. It's not that we have a temple. But it does say something about their disobedience. So they forsook their spiritual priority of obedience to God. Now, this is fleshed out for us in different ways, obviously. But I think the principle is the same. And so I think there's aspects that can apply here to our lives. So notice here, as I say about correcting Judah's spiritual priorities by obeying God, Haggai lucidly demonstrates the consequences for disobedience to the God of the covenant and the results of obedience. When Israel demonstrated that God and his house were preeminent, instead of being cursed, God would bless them. Encouragement and strength were the results of loyalty to God as demonstrated by obedience to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, they set forth uh, what the blessings are for obedience. And by the way, they were material with Israel, but not exclusively. And what the curses are, their material benefits get affected. So that should wake them up. By the way, isn't that... When God gets your attention, when you lose your money, you know, when you mess with my wallet, th- that's a sensitive area. <laughs> and that's what he had to do to Israel. So, you know, fortunately, we're not under those covenants, so we don't see. You know, I don't say when we have a drought that this is a curse of God. Now, he may be teaching us some lessons, but we can't say that. Like I cannot say this bad winter is God's curse on us. I think God's got a sense of humor. He's saying to President Obama, you really believe that global warming stuff? And he's saying to a lot of other wackos, these weather patterns, they're cyclical. There's... There's weather websites that document these things for the past couple hundred years. And uh, it's amazing how foolish our nation is. But we do not have a Christian nation. 
we may have a Judeo-Christian foundation, but we're fooling ourselves if we think we have a Christian nation. Uh, and I don't think we have to look to the White House for that. I think that occurs on either side of the aisle. It's unfortunate. What's our obligation? When God regenerated us, we're to follow him, uh, regardless of the cost. So I, I think Haggai can say something to us, too, because that's our priority. In fact, I taught Chinese house church leaders for years. And uh, I've talked to them a, no, a lot about politics. And uh, they're just taken back that Christians in our country are worried about the political scene. Because they're not. I've been told many times, suffering will be good for the American church. I said, well, but there's one difference. We do have some level say-so. And we need to vote that which is most consistent morally with what God's expectations are. So that's different than you all. But they still don't get it. And I think we're moving to that type of lot. I mean, I don't think we'll... I mean, we'll probably end up like Europe and, you know, Britain and stuff like that. But I don't... You know, I don't see that. I mean, I mean, it really take some real doings. It's not an impossibility, but it would seem like logically we'll go more the route of Europe and England. So, which is sad. Well, anyway, God expects us to be obedient no matter what our government demands of us. Well, let's look at the expectations, exposition, not expectations. Maybe we call, could call this the great expectations in Haggai. <laughs> uh, but this is just the exposition of Haggai. Notice message one. That's found in chapter one. The objective of Haggai in this chapter was to challenge the leaders and the people of Israel about their indifference toward finishing the rebuilding of the temple and to admonish them to complete the task. And I point out three ways we'll divide the chapter. Uh, let's initially look at the superscription. That's in verse 1. I'm breaking in a new NIV study Bible. I wanted to get this before they do the one with the new study notes. This was sympathetic to dispensationalism. In fact, there were dispensationalists who were parts of the committees. I've got friends who are working on the new NIV study Bible, and it is not sympathetic to dispensationalism. That's why I bought this. This is the 2011, but I've got the old notes because I believe in the old notes more than I will the new notes. I'll probably just get mad with all that covenant theology in there. So, anyway, I wanted to save myself from a potential heart attack. <laughs> so I'm transferring my notes, but I didn't realize how many notes. It's taken me hours to transfer my notes from my old Bible to my new Bible. Uh, I put in two hours every week and 
Fortunately, I have it all done in a little while, but my old NIV is falling apart. Pages are falling out, so I'm forced to do this. But anyway, this, I may fumble around a little bit because this is not broken in like my old one. So the pages still stick together, but I'm going to get there. So, Haggai 1, verse 1. Look at the, it says here, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheotiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest. Now, if you notice the date there, it's the first day of the sixth month. Now, that translates into August 29th, 520 B.C. Now, we can understand the dating system. When you read your Old Testament, you have this king's date being compared to that king's date and all this stuff. And it's hard to trace. But there was a book done by Seventh-day Adventists in the mid-20th century, Edwin Thiele. And uh, he helped unravel a lot of it. A lot of research had gone into it. And so he converted the dates to the Gregorian calendar. And so because we have this precise date, and this can be coordinated not only with Israel, but there's a few key dates with the Assyrians because we have extended records on the Assyrians. By comparing to the two, you get a cross-reference. So by doing that, Thiele was able to solve quite a bit of mystery here. And so... My Bible follows that. Everybody follows it. So we're very sure about the date. So this would be the end of summer, uh, right when the kids are just started back to school. Hallelujah, those days are over. I do, I do thank God that all my children now have children because... I believe in that proverb. What goes around comes around. <laughs> the unfortunate part is we don't have any grandsons. Our problems were with my sons. Amy was emotional. But these guys were always in trouble. I had a path to the principal's office and to some teachers. So, But somehow they graduated. In fact, they even made it, well... Joshua got kicked out of school, so we homeschooled him. But Bob graduated, and they both graduated from Bob Jones. So uh, Joshua finally learned to control himself a little bit. <laughs> but you probably remember. A bit, yeah. yeah, he was a real, what would you say? He just had a lot of energy. He was different. They're different. They're different. My dad had almost as much time in my high school as I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Him and they had a dean of boys that was all high school at the time. And they were on first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was on first name basis with the principal, too. <laughs> I not think of it. But what was interesting is that with Bob's oldest daughter, Maren, she's in fifth grade. When she was in third grade, they were reading some material, I guess, it, you know, it related to science. And the textbook said that uh, 
man came a long time after dinosaurs. And so Marin, she took it home to her dad. You know, my son went into the teacher and said, you know, what we're asking for, they go to a, they go to a charter school, but it's a public school. He says, I'm not asking you to teach biblical creationism, but I'm asking you to say there's another side and there's arguments for it. And then he gave her a rundown on young earth creationism. So, but you know, the teacher did honor that. So, but they chose the school they were going to be in because it's a very conservative school. And Marin's teacher this year is a Christian, and he's an outspoken evangelical. It's been good for her because she's very shy, and he's helped her come a little out of the shell. But, you know, they they purposely put their kids in a school system that they knew was more compatible with their Christianity because they do have a number of teachers. But he he does not like the school systems around them because a lot of them are King James only. And he thinks excessively legalistic. And he just doesn't want to put his kids through that. He, I mean, he, he's the one that's going to be a legalist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's a cop. What can you expect? <laughs> I mean, when uh, his daughters speak, they say, yes, daddy, no, daddy. Yes, mommy, no, mommy. When he first got out of the police academy, they said, yes, sir, no, sir. But he's mellowed on that. But they still, they have to look him right in the eye. Say, yes, mommy, no, mommy. Yes, daddy, no, daddy. So he's pretty strict. But he's, but he's a very good girl's daddy. I think Joshua's going to be a good girl's daddy, too. He just pampers his daughter. He may be a little bit too much the other way. So I'm denied the privilege of seeing my sons suffer the intrigue of having sons. Yeah, maybe I need to get my spiritual priorities right. <laughs> well, in any event, enough of my frivolity. Uh, let's look at the authority of the message here. Did you notice in verse 1 it says, the word of the Lord came. That expression, the word of the Lord, is used about 240 times in the Old Testament. That's a whole lot of times. And it almost exclusively talks about special revelation. Now, what do I mean by special revelation? General revelation, that's what we see in creation. The stars, nature. Special revelation is what God speaks. We have, now God spoke more things than what we have here. But, what he wanted us to have is what was written down because the writing was for a purpose of preservation. And we do that through English translations today. So, you know, he's, can we say, we're reading special revelation when we read Haggai. Everything that's inscripturated is special revelation. But in those days, they didn't have a completed canon. And so the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. And it had authority with it. Other expressions that are similar to the word of the Lord, this is in my third paragraph. He, the Lord, said. 
Also we have declare the Lord. The voice of the Lord. They're all referring to special revelation. And as I put in the last line. This is authoritatively stating. That the prophet was accurately communicating his message. That's, that's as forceful as it gets. It's better than someone speaking in ex-cathedra. If you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, or even pastors sometimes that think they're the popes. So, anyway, I'm sure Pastor Ken's not that way. Well, Pope Ken? No, no. no he's definitely not that way. Uh, also notice the instrument proclaiming the message. It comes through the prophet Haggai. Haggai is the prophet who's divinely authorized to proclaim the Lord's message. Then the recipients, did you know, notice in this verse we had a guy by the name of Zerubbabel and also the son of Joshua? Well, Zerubbabel, he was the grandson of King Jehoiakim. He was a parent heir to the Davidic throne. But because of the disobedience of some of his grandfathers, that was bypassed. So here, this, this guy's in the right family, though. Uh, then we also have Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest. Here, he is the high priest. Zerubbabel's the governor. Now, you have the king of uh, Persia who's going to be over him. But nevertheless, he is the governor for, for Israel. Okay, well, that's enough about verse 1. Now, are there any questions on that? It's pretty straightforward. Let's look at verses 2 through 11. The development of the disputation sermon encouraging Judah to rebuild the Lord's temple. Verses 2 to 11. What Haggai's done here, he's developed his sermon around the form of a disputation speech. Now, I explain that right in the next sentence. Okay, so with this disputation speech, what it is, it's refuting another's. It's a refutation of another's stated position into, by the way, I left out, if you're following along with me in that second line, it says into, there should be an order, in order to, unless I corrected that with your notes. Yeah, this is the second line under 2 to 11. A disputation speech is a refutation of another state of position into, or do you have an order to? Okay, well, put order in there. I marked it in red so I won't forget to change it. Anyway, my bad on that one. So, this is refuting another stated position in order to persuade them that the position is incorrect and they should adopt the position of the one presenting the speech. In this case, Haggai. 
So this disputes their claims that related to their disposition, their disobedient disposition. Haggai's challenging them on that. He's trying to refute their foolishness and to show them that the only thing to do is to obey God. So he's calling them on their carpet for their apathy. Let's look at verses 2 to 7. The explanation of the problem. Judah's indifference toward rebuilding the temple. On page 5, Haggai's explanation, I break down here into three units. Notice the basis for the problem. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now notice, with this basis, we have what we call the messenger formula. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here, this expression is found approximately 300 times in the Old Testament, with 247 of these in the prophetic books. It's found in Haggai 14 times, Zechariah 53, and Malachi 24 times. The point of the expression is to depict the Lord's absolute power over all his creation. That's the point of it, to show his absolute, unmitigated power over all his creation. The momentous significance of this expression as used in Haggai must be evaluated against the historical background. The emperor of Persia at that time, sovereign, the emperor of Persian had at that time sovereign sway over his vast empire, including the minor province of Jerusalem, Judah. The emperor's word was law, even to the Jewish community. Now, however, another word was conveyed to them, the word of the Lord Almighty, he being the highest and most absolute potentate in the whole universe, including the Persian Empire. It's like a prophet appearing before President Obama, saying, you're not as powerful as you think you are. Now, we don't have prophets today. But, you know, that one time Ben Carson was at the prayer breakfast, I thought he got pretty close. <laughs> Thank God for those Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> I don't know, did you ever see, ever see that movie, Gifted Hands? The movie, Gifted Hands? It's a good one to rent. It's about Ben Carson. And uh, it's, it's really a motivational thing for Christians. Cuba Gooding Jr. Jr. plays uh, Ben Carson. But he had problems when he was a kid. And uh, his mother, I mean, I think she became a Christian. I mean, seven, there are Seventh-day Adventists who are Christians. But it looked like she was the real deal. And her goal was to have her sons get an education and stay off the streets. At that time, Carson, he was a poor student. Well, because of her force, 
you know, he ended up excelling. And it, I mean, it does show when he did that first, uh, what was it? Those two, uh, oh, what's that when the kids are tied together? What's that? Yes, Siamese twins. When he separated them, that was the first surgery of that. So anyway, it's very motivating. But anyway, that's the closest thing I can get to somebody speaking up against the force of the United States. Wasn't his mother just a, a teenager when he was born to her? Yeah. yeah, she was a single mother. Yep, it's amazing they survived. In the streets of Detroit. So it can be done. It's hard, but it can be done. But you have to have somebody who's really committed. And his mother was really committed. But anyway, it's a very good Christian motivational movie. So I highly recommend it. Well, we need to move on. We don't have those types of prophets, but that's the closest I can get. <laughs> Let's look at the attack on Judah's position in verses 3 to 4. Notice the introduction to the attack in verse 3. Notice Haggai, he's hung up here. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Notice his hang up when he records his materials. This word of the Lord keeps on popping up because he's got something from God. Notice here, he... uh, he seems to be repeating this for rhetorical effect. I mean, what I mean by that, when you repeat something, it's it's usually for a reason. Uh, I know when I repeated myself, when we were raising our children, that meant there was trouble. And I think here, speaking analogically, I think that's the whole point here. The special effect is you're in big trouble. Notice uh, on page 6, let's look at the content of the attack on Judah's position. Verse 4. Now, sometimes I'll read my notes, but I know them pretty well, so I don't always read them. So I may be going through them. But uh, I'll try to keep you in line with where I am. Notice, it says here in verse 4, the NIV, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? You know, the Hebrew grammar here is strange. We got you repeated, a form of it, three times here. May I say, there's another emphasis? You, yourself, Y'all, so here it's putting a stress on Judah's responsibility for not rebuilding the temple. So God, through the prophets, making it very clear, you're the culprit and you can't get away from it. Notice it's also their paneled houses. The word paneled may indicate that Haggai has reference to either a decorated house Or a finished house. Decorated would be paneled house. Like the NIV translates it. It also could refer to a finished house. One with a roof on it. 
it can go either way. Then I'd be preferred paneled house. Uh, I prefer finished house, but it doesn't make that much of a difference. They were more concerned about their house. If it's referring to paneled houses, it's referring to the wealthy of the land. Because what's described there, people were suffering. Because of the suffering, that's why I personally prefer a roof over their house. It contrasts the Lord's house that doesn't have it. But God makes it clear here that they're responsible. Also notice here, he says, while this house remains a ruin, this is my third paragraph, and it is the last clause in verse 4. Notice here, this last clause is the antithesis of the preceding. Notice the contrast between your houses and this house. That's the contrast. The expression remains a ruin apparently refers to something that is uninhabited or even a place that is not usable. That's God's house. But your houses, they've been taken care of. So that's a strong contrast. In my next paragraph, my final one under this point, when we consider this data, we must also compare this with its historical setting as set forth in Ezra 3 and 4. Now, I summarize it here. So let me read. Ezra 3, 2 to 6 establishes that when the Jewish people returned from, the Bab- from Babylon in 536 B.C., they set up an altar to offer up regular sacrifices and celebrate the Feast of Tab- Tabernacles. 3, 7 to 15 demonstrates that the Jews began to rebuild the temple by laying its foundation. Ezra 4, 1 to 5 reflects that the Samaritans and Judah's other neighbors were able to obtain legal counselors who were able to effectively influence Cyrus to have this project suspended. Ezra 4.24 indicates that the temple, with only its foundation having been laid, remained in this state until the second year of Darius. When we evaluate this information, it is best to understand that the adjective cannot mean that the temple with its surrounding court, was in a complete state of ruin. Ezra demonstrates that the court had been at least partially reconstructed, and the foundation for the temple had been laid. Consequently, the temple was only a ruin in the sense that it was unfinished and therefore could not be used effectively. So that's the content of this attack on Judah's positions. So I think at this point we're clear. Their problem is their disobedience and not building the temple, rebuilding it. But God's just not a negative God. He's going to give them a solution. I mean, unless you're in a status of condemnation, then he, he is real negative. May I say extremely negative? Eternally negative? <laughs> so I don't want to minimize God's anger or anything like that. But here, if they would not have obeyed Haggai's word, they would not have rebuilt the temple, and things would have gotten worse. So, 
Let's look at the exhortation to reflect on present circumstances. Notice the general exhortation, verse 5. It says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Notice this, give careful thought to your ways. This command here, give careful thought to your ways, literally, I could translate that as set your hearts upon your ways. The command to set your hearts is found in this verse, 1, 7, 2, 15, and twice in 2, 18. In Hebrew, to set one's heart on something meant to consider it seriously. By the way, that's why the NIV translates it accurately. Give careful thought to your ways. This is something you really need to meditate on. Grasp the significance of it. That's the point. Well, let's move over to page 7. The specific object of contemplation. Frustrating social and economic conditions. conditions. Verse 6. By the way, I forgot to say something when we began. You know, I'd recommend that you read through an English translation. In fact, I would get something that's a little bit more literal, like NASB, the ESB, and I would compare it with the NIV. Now, there are other dynamic, functionally equivalent translations, like the Net Bible. But since your church uses the NIV, I would compare it with the compare it with the NIV. It's amazing. You'll find out how much better it is to use the NIV. But I think it helps us think a little bit more about the sense of things. So I usually encourage English readers. It's, it's good to read two or three different translations. You may not know Hebrew, but you're going to pick up a few things by comparing them. So I'd encourage you to do that. And they're not very long, I think, six chapters. So, you know... You can do that just before you go to bed or whatever, but uh, usually I'm better in the morning, so I usually, I'm going through the Psalms now, and I like to put, you know, about 10 minutes in. I mean, I don't do any more because I've got a busy schedule, plus I do work with my Hebrew Bible, but I think it's good for my own personal life just to read it to see what God has to say. With Hebrew, I'm looking at that with more of a narrow vision. I'm thinking of the grammatical constructions and how does it all fit together, which is valuable. But I think just to get the overall sense of going through Scripture, that, that's a good thing to do. So anyway, I'd encourage you to do that. But going back to my notes, picking up where I had messed up at the beginning... We'll get to where we should be. The specific object of contemplation. Notice I mentioned that frustrating social and economic condition. Look at the five tightly bound clauses here in verse 6. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are warm, or but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. 
they're losing out with their crops, with what they eat, with what they drink. Uh, they're not kept warm with their clothes. Well, that'd be a sad thing. <laughs> and the wages they've earned, it's like putting into a, a pocket today with holes in it. You know, when I was a kid, my dad would have holes in his pocket. And back then, you kept a lot of change. Now, I just use Visa and MasterCard and American Express. <laughs> but I do keep, I mean, I do keep some change. But, you know, he said whenever it went through his pants pockets, we were free to keep it. Well, we made some serious change on that. Because he always kept his hands in his pocket and poked the holes in there. I mean, so we thank God that he was putting his hands in his pocket. <laughs> but can you imagine if you lose too much money, you were going to put the brakes on it? Well, back in the old days when we used to use cash, we thought about it more. But this would be like putting a credit card into a wallet that's got a hole in it and you lose your credit card. That gets our attention. Well, this got their attention because that was more significant for them. So the point is, this, these here are called covenant curses. If we looked at Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, the curses for disobedience to the covenant are spelled out. In particular, Deuteronomy 28, 38 to 40, and Leviticus 26, 20. Disloyalty results in the land becoming unproductive. And when you're a farmer, that's a major thing. And it becomes a major thing for the consumers. But nevertheless, that's what you call, that we'll call covenant curse. It's spelled out the uh, Mosaic Covenant, the fullest form of it's in Deuteronomy. Now we have a smaller portion of that in Exodus. That's usually called the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes simplified as the Sinai Covenant. The one in Deuteronomy is called the Deuteronomic Covenant. So it's just a full form of the Mosaic Covenant. And so here, they were disobedient. And God promised to play hardball with them. To discipline them. So that's the point. Now, we could go on further, but you know, this is probably a good time to stop